Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kayan Isaacson. This week, it's 3 2 1 Go with Cosmo Macero. Then Hugh Drummond speaks to Amanda Hunter, Executive Director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. And last up, Two Minutes with Tom. First up, 3 2 1 Go. Hello and welcome to another edition of 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. Joining me here, of course, on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. She's the official voice of OA On Air, and uh, and here she is, Kyan. Great to be talking to you once again. Happy day. Happy day. Hey, let's jump into some pretty interesting marketing uh stuff start with nike and uh, uh a lot of attention uh swirling around a new product and uh uh an endorsement from um uh from a pop star or rap star little nas i can't say his name right little nas x is that right little nas little nas little nas uh and I, I hear the song a lot around my household because my uh, my teenager is a big fan of the song and the artist and, uh, and that's getting a lot of attention. Uh, Nike has sued him now. Uh, you know, so it's interesting. He released this very controversial music video uh, to go with his song. And that got a lot of backlash and attention in and of its own right. Uh, then he released this, you know, shoe that it was a Nike shoe that he sort of rebranded. It's got 666 on it, allegedly has actual blood in the soul, I'm not sure why that's attractive to anyone, but apparently it, it, it is. it's not. It's not clear whether it's Little Nas's blood or just it, it, like it's some old... guy on the, you know, yeah, working in the factory. Like, no one knows. Um, and Nike essentially came out and has sued Anti Defamation and said, "No, you know, you took our shoes and you're doing something with it that we don't agree with, that we don't endorse, we don't support," um, and you know, for Nike, a company that we have on this podcast talked a lot about just how often they get it right. They've done, you know, particularly in the last couple of years, some of the marketing and advertising moves they've made have just been absolutely amazing, um, really encouraging, positive. This, you know, a, a satanic shoe uh, really goes against that, first and foremost. And also, it seems that he did it without any sort of permission. Um, cause he just took these Nikes and went and modified them. And apparently all 666 pairs of the modified Nikes priced at $1,018 sold out. Yeah. No, he, um, he, he, he knows how to create demand and uh, excitement around a product. Of course, a limited edition, uh, uh, product at that with 666, the number of the beast, uh, um, um pairs of these shoes the song is montero the video is montero i mean is there anything to be said for the fact i wouldn't call it satire but it's certainly commentary and a very personal one because he he talks about the the, you know the the challenge he had uh as a gay teenager growing up and a lot of self-hatred and and i think that what he is saying or, or maybe saying is that part of this is reflective of that. I, I don't know, but it, you know, it, it's, it is, 
there's something there in terms of social commentary. And, and maybe Nike's just saying, yeah, that's fine. But you know what? You can't take our shoe modified and then just and then just rebrand and resell it. Yeah, but, he's actually not even named in the lawsuit specifically. Um, yeah. But, you know, their thing is you used our swoosh, which is that's our that's our thing. Um, this is our brand and you're utilizing our likeness. Uh, I think the social commentary that has come of the video is sort of another whole issue in and of itself um, because he did. He came out and said, you know, these are issues I've struggled with. You're not going to make me feel bad. Good for him. Um, and then he also tweeted something, you know, like, hey, you all let your kids listen to Old Town Road. Like, did you not listen to the lyrics? I had that conversation with more people. Logan sang that song at every camp he went to for a summer. And I remember talking to another parent and was like, do you have any idea what this song is about? Like, why yeah. are we letting our kids sing this and dance to this at camps? Um, yeah. I'm not that crazy. So I didn't like pull them out or anything, but you know, there's a point to be made there. However, I do think that that's very separate from where Nike is coming from, because I think they just don't agree with their shoe and their brand being akin to Satan and blood on the shoe. And I think they would do that even if it wasn't Satan. I think they would say if someone's putting out something that we are not directly involved with, that's, you don't get to do that. That's, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. I want to just, you know, don't mess with our intellectual property. Our lawyers will, will, will destroy you because they're the lawyers for Nike. I get all that. I, I do think, though, that the, the the Satan part here is like a metaphor. It's a, it's a, it's a it's it's a figure in the in the in the song and in the video. It reminds me, as I am about to date myself, of you know the Motley Crue album and song "Shout at the Devil" 1981, their their, their breakthrough album, and, and and there was a tremendous uproar. That was that that kicked off the whole Tipper Gore, um, you know. Uh, parental uh, labels on uh, warnings on records and and people were saying Motley Crue is promoting Satanism and, and you know when you need to be educated by Vince Neil when he says it, it, the song is called shout at the devil as in like you know it but but it just took on a life of its own because it used Satan as you know an artistic, uh, uh, as a as an artistic part of the song and the video and stuff. So I think there's some of that here going on. Bottom line, though, yeah, you're you're a consumer brand and you're like our shoes, Satan. Yeah, that that, that doesn't really work. So just knock it off. And I and I get that. Not today. Yeah. So yeah. interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Um, probably the only time Little Nas will be compared to Motley Crue. Uh, but uh, but there you go. All right, let's move. Let's move on to another popular brand, Volkswagen. Little pet peeve of ours. Little pet peeve of yours. April Fool's jokes as part of a marketing strategy, and boy, Volkswagen, uh, they kind of stepped in it. They hit the. Uh, they missed the mark uh, a little bit for sure. They had a April Fool's Day prank that they were renaming their company Volkswagen. That's Volt with a T instead of a K. Um, they also did it earlier this week, which was a little early for April Fool's Day. Uh, sent out a press release, changed the website, did all of the things. Um, 
April Fool's Day pranks as PR tactics are very hit or miss. I generally think that they're misses. I think they they were cool and fun a few, maybe five years ago. I think the sort of intrigue has worn off a little bit. Um, but it's got to be the right prank. It has to be the right moment. It has to be the right company. There's so many things that have to line up for it to work. Volkswagen has had a really rough couple of years um, with some negative negative attention, negative press, some mistakes that have been made within the company. And for them to come out and sort of make a joke at this time felt a little flat. Um, it also wasn't perceived as an April Fool's Day joke. It was almost too close to real. I think it has like it to be a good PR prank. It's got to seem just ridiculous. If so I was in, if, look, if I if I was in that room, uh, and I probably never will be with Volkswagen, but if I was in that room, I'd say, hey, look, it, you know, and this is the era of fake news, right? A, a, a media release, a press release, that's not the tool for a joke. It just isn't, especially a corporate communications uh, uh, missive. So you want to you want to you want to do this? Here's how you do it. Here's how, spend one day, April first, an all social campaign. All you do is change the logo that one day, and then use your social that day to promote your. Well, they're promoting their electric. electric. They're promoting your, your electric yeah. vehicles. Cool. Promote them all day. Change the logo for the day to vote, vote, Volkswagen. People will buzz about it, talk about it. You don't have to say anything about it, and boom, you've had a great promotion. Don't. Yeah pretend with press releases it's not the place for it. yeah so we were talking so you and i had a client years ago that we did an april fool's day prank with it was um something new for us it was territory we weren't we had never really waited in before it was fun it was interesting it was something so ridiculous that it was seemingly a joke but also the wrong person could take it as seriously and i remember fighting a little bit for a very small subscript at the bottom. There's an asterisk and a small fine print that said, in case this wasn't apparent, please know that this is an April Fool's Day prank. And I found that that took a lot of pressure off of me being the sender of said <laughs> press release, yeah. um, particularly because while they wanted to get into sort of some fun news, they also wanted to get in front of some not silly, you know, reporters that were writing on things that were, you know, more business related. And I was like, I am not going to be the messenger of pulling a prank that someone might not be able to um, decipher from. But it was a fun day. Social was the was the guiding force for sure. And the release was more to get on lists of, you know, reporters who were putting out like, here are the companies doing April Fool's Day pranks this year. Um, but it was harmless. They also, but they put a lot, it was a big deal for them. And I think industry to industry is certainly different, but it's got to be executed properly. And to your point, the, the fake news world right now, it's, it's a touchy topic. Um, and particularly for a company that has, you know, needs to be more worried about getting back online and getting back to business in a responsible way versus you know, a two-day early April Fool's Day. It's not even April Fool's Day if you do it on like March 30th. It's just not. You can only you can only do you know do it. Got to be on April no. Fool's. Yeah, it's it's like it was only funny this morning when my 
12 year old said, I flunked my math test. I thought I got an A, but I flunked. And then he said, April Fools. It, 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 it's April Fools. You know, it, it wor- it's, it's good for one day. Yeah, I'm waiting. Uh, my son loves a good April Fool's Day prank. Last year, he put ketchup in my coffee. Uh, and then I thought that was the funniest thing he had ever done. And then poured a box of cereal over my head. I'm not sure that that's an April Fool's Day prank, but he got a real kick out of himself. I thought of a good April. I thought of a good April Fool's Facebook post this morning, and then I got and I was like, "Oh, this is gonna be kind of funny," and then I got distracted and didn't do it. Now I feel like it's too. Well, maybe it's not. Life gets in the way. Life got in the way. All right, April Fools. Finally, uh, hey, how about some vaccine talk? People are getting the vaccine. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's rolling out. I think I think 150 million vaccines have been administered. Uh, by my math, that's actually probably 25% of the population because most vaccines still require two doses. I could be wrong about that. Uh, mm-hmm. Your number came up. My number's coming up very soon uh, for part two. So we're people are getting it. It's good. Yeah. I, I got my first shot yesterday. Um, I feel good. My arm's a little sore. But that was about it. Went in. Got it done. Sat in my chair with a 15-minute timer to supervise me to make sure that I was feeling okay. And then they gave me a bottle of water and I went on my way. And I I have to say, I've had sort of a one-two punch in the past week. My mother-in-law surprised my son on last week and came to visit. They hadn't seen each other since July. They were very close. It was a very magical moment watching them be reunited um, after she has been fully vaccinated. We tested, we sort of self-isolated, you know, did all of the things to make sure it was safe. Um, that moment alone and then going yesterday and getting my shot and feeling like you're finally sort of taking some sort of control or doing something to push combat this epidemic that has really just, you know, rattled all of us for the last year. It feels hopeful. It feels, it feels good. Like this week, I just feel like we're making some very good, big progress. And I, I was able to see it on a very, small local personal level twice this week and you know I can't being able to see a grandmother and you know her grandson be reunited without fear is was pretty special and we want more of those deserve that yeah no that's great that's great to hear um I think that depending on where you are a a lot of the operational challenges have have been overcome we had you know Massachusetts had serious hang-ups early on with uh, the appointment infrastructure, and that is that has been uh, improved or even solved. And I think, and I think, you know, uh, and we're on the doorstep of everyone being eligible. I think it's April nineteenth here in this state. It's different where you are, but but you know, one of the the lingering issues with vaccination is there's still a a segment of the population that that is 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 wary, is concerned. Some are hell no, no way. And it, it, it is not a, a easily identified fringe group. It, it, it's people across demographics. It's people college across professions. College. It's people who have uh, it, colleges. It's people, it, it is a, would appear to be a sort of surprising number of first responders and law enforcement and emergency personnel. <laughs> and, and, and um, you know, it, it, I don't understand. I, I never really understood the anti-vaxxer movement. I don't understand a reluctance um, uh, to, to uh, you know, to, to 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 be vaccinated against a a 
a serious threat to uh, public health and, and, and potentially anyone's life. But it's it exists and there's an education process. But I think that, you know, we, you need to accept that there will be Americans who will never be vaccinated for COVID-19 because at some point um, you can only mandate so much. All you can do is restrict their access to certain certain things. You can't, you know, from a, in my opinion, from a Fourth Amendment perspective, you can you can restrict their access to certain things. You certainly cannot force a medical procedure on someone without, uh, you know, without uh, unleashing holy, you know what, on uh, from civil liberties perspective. Yeah, it's going to be something we're going to start to see. I mean, I think we're seeing it a little bit already, but certainly even more so in the months ahead that companies and organizations are going to have to start having some very real conversations about, which is, do we mandate, do we allow, you know, there are going to be airlines that say you have to be vaccinated to fly, I'm yep. sure. Then there are going to be airlines that are going to say, you don't have to be vaccinated to fly with us. Um, And they're probably going to charge more. It's like the whole evolution of how the, you know, how masks have been integrated into society and marketing. And now, now the vaccine, you're right. Yeah. Vaccine free, you know, I guarantee spirit. My favorite airline is going to be the first, you know, no, no vax, no problem. Right? You, don't have to, you don't have to be vaccinated to fly with us. However, their their tickets probably won't be as cheap as they were. I mean, there's going to be a trade-off. And um, while I wholeheartedly believe that people should make decisions that they feel right for them, I also wholeheartedly believe that people should be very well educated on what it is they're making decisions about. Um, there is so much good information out there about vaccines that it, you know, the Operation Warp Speed. This was not rushed. This this process was rushed through bureaucracy, but the science was not rushed. Um, And there's research and multiple people and doctors who will come out and talk about that. Uh, But at the end of the day, you know, herd immunity is what's going to get us back to some level of normal. And for those who don't want to be vaccinated, I think people have personal reasons that are totally understandable and respectable. I'm sure others, perhaps not so much. Um, but if they want normalcy, they're sort of relying on the rest of us to do to get the vaccine so that we can get there. So it's, I don't know, it's a tough, it's tough. People have different reasons for different and, things. And, and, yeah, and not, not, I felt really excited about it. I felt like I took a piece of, you know, power back, so to speak. And I was like, I am now one step closer to being able to travel to see my friends, to see my family that I haven't seen in a year. That's exciting. Yeah. And then you said, not to get in, too deep into it, we, we're up against it, but um, then you talk about creating sort of, it, it just by default, you're creating sort of two categories or two classes, not classes, I guess, but two categories of people. And, and how does that play out? So we'll, we'll be talking about this a lot more. We're up against it. Thanks a lot, uh, Kyan. Another great episode. That's going to do it for this edition of 321 Go. Our program is recorded remotely from uh, locations around the Commonwealth and the nation. Our producer is Catherine O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Good vital next time. I'm Cosmo Macero.
Matthew Drummond here for Seven Letter and O'Neill and & Associates, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with Amanda Hunter. Amanda is the Executive Director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, and she's been a previous guest on, on the podcast. The uh, Barbara Lee Family Foundation works to advance women's equality and representation in American politics. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you back. You're always a great interview. Oh, and, thank uh, you. So it's informative. Great to be here. <laughs> Amanda, the foundation recently um, presented research on how the COVID 19 pandemic has upended women's lives and changed how women and, and probably men. Uh, how they will approach uh, work and life going forward. Can you tell us more about that research? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And we did this research with our partners at American University's Women in Politics Institute. We have a program called Gender on the Ballot, and we worked with Benenson Strategies. And we know that women have really always been at the vanguard of political and social movements. That's something that's really important to our founder, Barbara Lee. And if you think about the past few elections, women have been extremely influential and a big topic of conversation. So it was important to us to see how the pandemic may have shaped women's views when you look at policy. And I think that one thing about the pandemic is that it's really brought government and politics to people's front door, even people who beforehand maybe would have said that they were not political. And it's really put a spotlight on our country's healthcare system in particular and stoked support for policy changes. Nearly all of the women that we surveyed said that there should be more affordable and accessible healthcare. And that includes three quarters of Republican women. So that seems like a big shift. Eight in 10 women supported better paid sick and maternity leave. So this is really a time that women are evaluating some foundational programs and seeing how it's upended their lives when they can't rely on some of those things, frankly. It's, um, it certainly has, has done that. Uh, the, the pandemic exposed a lot of inequality or, or put the spotlight on inequality. Um, can you speak a little bit about some of uh, the ways you've seen that manifest itself in, in the data? Yes, absolutely. And this data actually shows that 77% of women's surveys are concerned that the pandemic has exacerbated inequality. So that's something that women are really paying attention to and worried about. We knew anecdotally and just ask any women in your life that women and particularly women of color have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. But the pandemic is really taking a mental and economic toll on women. Over one in three women that we spoke with said their financial situation has gotten worse since COVID-19 emerged. And a quarter of working women said the pandemic has negatively impacted their careers when it comes to things like delaying raises, bonuses, and promotions. And mothers are feeling this even more acutely. And another big point of concern is that 60% of women and a staggering 71% of women under the age of 40 said that this situation with the pandemic has negatively impacted their mental health. So women are really feeling this both in their pocketbook and in their well-being. With Without a doubt. I mean, mental health um, is uh, 
I mean, clearly uh, an effect of the pandemic. And I have to believe, I have to imagine that um, at some point when when schools go back or when the pandemic uh, hopefully ends, whenever that is, the, the, the effects of mental health will be long lasting. I mean, very long lasting. And I, I, I imagine that women have had to shoulder the lion's share of the mental health burdens uh, from their families as well during this time. Absolutely. I, I imagine that mothers in particular are probably very concerned about this is how this is impacting their children. I think one really interesting point looking forward to whatever the new normal is going to be is that in a lot of ways, women aren't interested in going back to the way things were before. 78% of women said that workplaces should allow more flexibility and that the nine to five model is outdated. So even when you think about kids going back to school, I don't think that means that moms necessarily want to rush back into their old life either. Yeah. Um, as, as a parent who has had the um, opportunity to work from home during this pandemic, I have to say that the the ability to share time or spend time with my children has been, it's been a push-pull, right? Because I've been able to be a part of so much more of their lives um, during this time. At the same time, it's been an enormous struggle. And my my youngest will restart full-time school next week and part of me is a little sad by that you know it's it's going to be there's a little bit of emotion involved and i imagine and like i said to start with i had the the opportunity to work from home and not everyone has had that uh opportunity so the burden's been a lot harder on others Absolutely. And I think that a lot of the women that we spoke with share your sentiments of over half of the moms that we talked to said that taking care of their kids during this time has been isolating and stressful. But 86% of moms also said that they loved having more time with their children. So there's a lot of mixed emotions with this situation. Yeah, definitely. So this data I found fascinating. I mean, because, um, I, obviously, everyone has been pandemic is is kind of how you frame everything um, these days, and to see this it, these enormous percentages uh, around things like um, uh, the workplace needs to change, flexible flexible approach to work going forward, um, the the spotlight on inequality, inequities in the um, in our society, the flaws in our healthcare system. Uh, the career setbacks that people have encountered. So you have this, all of this data. Um, do you think policymakers are, uh, how, how are they going to react to this data? How are they reacting to it? Does the fact that we have um, more women in politics make a difference? Because I'm sure a woman in politics is going to see this data in a different, through a different lens than perhaps a man. Absolutely. And especially the fact that when the Biden-Harris administration was announcing a lot of their appointments, not just to cabinet level positions, but even in their communications team and on a staff level, they were highlighting how many women, women of color and mothers they were hiring. 
that showed me that these women are really going to frame even the way that they talk about these issues very differently. Because if you're a mother trying to homeschool your children while doing communications for the White House, it's a much different experience than for some people who are not dealing with those pressures. So I do think lived experience makes a big difference here for sure. But although the pandemic has definitely affected women of color and people of color disproportionately, it is something that in some way has affected everyone on some level. And so in that way, it is sort of an equalizer when you think about how it must have shaped people's political opinions. And in that way, I think that it's going to be influential in ways that we can't even imagine right now in the years to come. I, I agree. I think that it, it's interesting. We, we talk about some of the, some of what your data shows, um, but uh, some of the bigger issues like, um, uh, you know, the future of the workplace or office flexibility, uh, where does, where, where should healthcare benefits go and things like that? It almost, that having had a pandemic occur and, and, and be so devastating, um, in a way has opened up everyone's eyes to, to all of these things and, and whether, whether they land on common ground in the end, who knows, but, but the fact of the matter is there is no denying that the, that um, the kind of the the future of work needs to be looked at differently, and the future of healthcare needs to be looked at differently. I can only look at something like telehealth, uh, which I, I imagine is here to stay. And the to think about a doctor's appointment before this, if you were if you're a working person and you wanted to schedule time with your doctor, it probably involved either taking a personal day or at least several hours of that day to arrange for something like that. And most of that time was not because, not with the appointment itself, but all the logistics around that. And telehealth shifts, shifts that and maybe is, is something that helps to um, um, bring a little bit more equality, although then you have the broadband issue, <laughs> I guess, which which kind of factors into that. But I, I think that going back to where I started, the the pandemic has opened up a, everyone's eyes, and hopefully we get to a better place uh, as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And for women, the personal has always been political, but really today the political is always is personal for a lot of women, and I think. The message here and what we've seen in the data and what we've just seen in the past year is that a lot of people on both sides of the aisle, including a lot of Fox News viewers who we talked to that were supportive of the Affordable Care Act and expanding Medicare and Medicaid, that we can't go it alone. Even people who say that they don't like big government, when you look at not just the pandemic, but what happened in Texas about six to eight weeks ago and the power grid and the water. And it's, it seems like it's a much more difficult argument to make that government does not impact people's lives. And it seems through this data and just the kind of national conversation that we've seen that people are realizing that. Yeah. It's, it's these moments um, where government uh, is most needed and, and can demonstrate its 
its greatest effectiveness. Um, so talk a little bit more about the, the mission of the foundation and, and how you are supporting women um, in advancing their interests in politics. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So more than 20 years ago, our founder, Barbara Lee, started doing this work because she realized then that women face additional obstacles when they run for office, and particularly for executive office, because in 1998, only the women who were incumbents won their gubernatorial races. All of the other women who ran that year lost, and that was really an aha moment for her. So she started doing research then, and we've studied every gubernatorial race evolving, involving a woman since 1998. And we've done a number of other thematic projects over the years too. And our goal is really just to give women the tools, whatever level of government they're running for office, as far and wide as we can, so that they understand both the obstacles and the opportunities that they have as women. And there are a lot of trends that we've identified more than 20 years ago that we still see over and over. Like the fact that women have to work twice as hard to prove that they're qualified and men are assumed to be qualified. And the fact that likability is a non-negotiable for women. Women have to earn the likability of voters in order for them to support them, whereas voters will vote for a man they do not like if they believe that he's qualified. So there are still a lot of ways that women are held to different and higher standards, but over the past several years, seeing a record number of women elected to office and women from all different backgrounds, it has helped to put a dent in some of those stereotypes. Again, I'm speaking with Amanda Hunter, the executive director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. It's... Um... It's interesting. I was watching a um, news program over the weekend, and they were reflecting on the the impact of uh, uh, some of the early 1970s television, some of the, the big shows that, that were kind of changing how society uh, interprets different um, uh, different issues. So shows like MASH, All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore Show. And they showed a clip of, of from the Mary, Mary Tyler Moore show of Mary Tyler Moore going to her. She was obviously a, a television reporter. That's the, the, the theme of the show. And she went to her um, uh, news manager, Ed Grant, and said, you know, I just found out that I was paid $50 less in my job than, than my male predecessor. Can you tell me why? And he looks up and he says, because he was a man <laughs> and it's it was it, then it was a it, it, this was big news to kind of point that out it's it's really unfortunate that we're still having that kind of conversation yeah absolutely and we just marked women will equal payday for white women last week it will take a lot longer for women of color to reach the point where they would make equal pay with men as well so there definitely are a lot of double standards in business in addition to politics yeah. as well. So Amanda, we are based in the Boston area and history was made here with the swearing in of Mayor Kim Janey, the first person of color as mayor, the first woman as mayor of Boston. What does this mean for the city and, and what do you think this means for women in general? Well, 
we were so excited to see this and Barbara always calls Boston the original old boys club, but for hundreds of years, it was led by white men. I mean, it's been more than 200 years of exclusively white men serving as mayor. So even though Kim Janey was sworn in at this point as acting mayor, I think it still sends a very strong symbol around the country and around the world because it made international news that women are electable in Boston and black women are electable in Boston. We talk a lot at the foundation about how voters still have an imagination barrier when it comes to picturing women in executive office. And here in Massachusetts, we've still never elected a woman governor. So to have a strong black woman serving as mayor and have three highly qualified women of color running for mayor, it's going to break down some of those long held stereotypes and actually allow some voters to picture a woman doing the job when that's been a barrier in their mind for so long. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're, we're glad to have her in office. Um, so Amanda, uh, if listeners want to find out more, um, tell us where they should go. Thank you. Well, they can visit our genderontheballot.org website if they're interested in this research. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at BLFF underscore ORG or on gender is our Twitter name. And also come to our website, the Barbara Lee Family Foundation website, which has all of our research as well as our essential guide, which is kind of our greatest hits for women. Amanda, thank you again so much uh, for, for joining us. And we look forward to having you back again soon. Thank you so much. Hello, Tom. Two minutes with Tom and Cayenne. How are you? I'm good. How are you, sir? Cayenne, I'm fine. We're going to talk about infrastructure today. Uh, we are this week. Uh, President Biden unveiled a two trillion to the T. A uh, $2 trillion infrastructure proposal titled the American Jobs Plan. Um, and I th- found it even more interesting that the United States currently ranks 13th in the world for the quality of our infrastructure. 13th which- in the world for infrastructure and where we are. So if there were ever a disaster or if there ever were uh, any any reason to have to utilize all of our infrastructure, we'd be in trouble. And so that's what the Biden administration is attempting to do, turn that around by building or rebuilding bridges, roads, you know, aging rail lines and other foundations that, that, that keep America going. That's the important thing. That really is the important thing. And it's sort of big picture to, to your point of roads and bridges, uh, which, you know, we know in Massachusetts alone how, I mean, in dire straits some of our roads and bridges are. But it also talks about affordable housing, access to the Internet, um, which is something that's long overdue. And particularly in the last year amidst this pandemic has become even more of an issue as children uh, struggle or people, you know, people were struggling if they didn't have full access to Internet. And that seems like a very simple thing that we should be able to ensure everyone can have in the year 2021. Um. I, I think that's right. I mean, what he's trying to do is, is close the 
you know the the racial the racial gap that exists because of infrastructure across America. So you know it, it's two pronged, it's insightful, and it's very visionary. And uh, I, I just think it's terrific. Now, will he get it through? You know, it, um, it it it's a lot because Mitch McConnell has referred to this package as a as a Roman as a as a Trojan horse stuffed with all kinds of goodies for everybody in America outside of infrastructure. Well, he kind of misses the point by about 360 degrees. It's it's not what it's about. What it is about is is rebuilding the infrastructure of America. And included in that are those things that traditionally help to divide or separate Americans popu- the American populations. And uh, I, I think it's I think it's terrific. And I think it's uh, it's something that needs to be discussed. And whether we can get it through with simply 51 votes, we have all the Democrat Democratic support that we need. Uh, I can only hope so. But we, you know, it's a long, long, tough hoe, a road to hoe, and uh, we're going to find that out. There's a lot in there that that for the other side. I mean, climate change is in there. Uh, union issues, the right to collectively bargain, raising uh, wages and benefits for for workers. It's, I think, yeah, it's going to be a long be a long fight. This is going to this is going to contribute to the creation of millions of jobs. Therein lies the opportunity for unions to come in and unionize middle class uh, middle class jobs that are newly created, and have an opportunity for the unions. He is a unabashed the president is an unabashed union supporter, and um, he was completely upfront with that. I can see where some Republicans won't be with it. With this legislation, because of that loan, that, mm-hmm. that issue alone, those things are to be expected. Yeah. Let's just see how far it goes, and and uh, you know we'll be, we'll be doing everything we can to make sure that we that we help that out. Yeah. Whether it's talking on a podcast or talking to a state uh, local uh, elected congressman, um, just see what we can't do, and just continuously talk about it, talk it up, and talk about the good aspects of it. Yeah. Well, we'll check back in on uh, the path towards the infrastructure plan. Here. We talk about we talk about tomorrow always being brighter. Legislation like this will make tomorrow look, seem, and be really very bright. And years to come. For years to come. Beyond that, have a wonderful Easter time. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.